Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Thursday, September 23rd, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, the dark side of the history of epidemiology, plus a study that proves, yes, actually, birds were louder and more numerous during lockdown, and two women in their hundreds who have lived incredible lives and refuse to quit doing what they love. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Throughout the pandemic, there's been a boom in attention on previous pandemics and epidemics. The 1918 flu, various cholera outbreaks, even the Black Death. We're curious about how people responded then and fascinated by findings that certain actions being employed now were actually implemented back then, too. You know, I think about the anti-mask demonstrations in the U.S. in 1918 and six-foot distancing recommendations in 1580s Sardinia. But historian Jim Downs, author of the newly released Maladies of Empire, recently wrote in Time about another point in history that led to the development of many of the strategies we use today, and shows both how tools to control an epidemic are often innovated on on the fly, while the crisis is occurring, and how so much of the history of medicine is sickly woven with the experiences of non-consenting subjects. As Down points out, most people put the origins of epidemiology with physician John Snow in Victorian London, who was able to control a cholera outbreak in a poor neighborhood of London after deducing that the disease was spreading via a water pump in the community center. Though he became known thereafter as the father of epidemiology, Downs explains that Snow had already been a founding member of the London Epidemiological Society for a few years prior to that, and that among that group included some physicians who had been investigating epidemics for quite some time. That Snow was perhaps a leader of the development of modern epidemiology is more accurate, but there were many who made important breakthroughs before him. Those just a bit older than him were working right as medical knowledge began to move away from the supernatural and the religious and towards the logical and scientific. More crucially, according to Downs, many of those physicians worked on slave ships and in colonial outposts in the 18th and early 19th centuries. There, they developed many of the same strategies we use today to control COVID-19, namely observation, tracking, and the collection of data. Quoting Downs, Slavery and imperialism both led to unprecedented social arrangements that congregated people into crowded environments where they were under constant surveillance. Although military and government officials established surveillance mechanisms to subjugate these populations, doctors were also part of these regimes and began to observe the spread of infectious disease. Slave ships and colonial plantations emerged as new environments that enabled doctors to study epidemics. British imperialism created vast bureaucracy that enabled physicians to systematically document their observations, collect data, and serve as the liaisons between the medical profession and the government, end quote. Of course, it's important to point out that the motivation among the imperialists to understand and treat disease among the people that they had enslaved was not out of compassion, but rather out of a desire to protect their investments. As Down puts it, quote, That troubling past is a reminder of how medical advances can occur on the backs of human beings with no say in the matter, end quote. 
And Downs points to a few examples of physicians being sent by the government to understand outbreaks in various colonies, like cholera in Jamaica in 1850 and scurvy on board one of the ships in the 1780s. In the former case, physician Gavin Milroy noted that the lack of ventilation and overall unsanitary conditions that black Jamaicans had been forced into was precipitating the spread of disease. In the latter, physician Thomas Trotter was able to prove that citrus worked as a preventative and treatment for scurvy. One of Down's key points, however, is that even though we can look back a few centuries and see the development of some epidemiological strategies we still use today, and they developed elsewhere too, as I've covered previously on the show, like 13th century Venice coining the term quarantine in their dealings with the plague. But even though so much of this goes back so far, it only further goes to show how much is actually figured out in the moment. We can be frustrated with how much the CDC and the WHO change their recommendations, but that's actually a sign that they're paying attention, observing, and updating their responses as the virus changes. Changes in ways we can try to predict, but never can completely. Concluding with this from Downs, quote, Our efforts to control the pandemic were not invented by scientists at the World Health Organization or even by doctors two centuries ago in Europe and the United Kingdom. Instead, the tools to control the pandemic began when doctors observed the spread of infectious disease among enslaved and colonized people. At the heart of epidemiology is a history of violence and conquest. Imperialism and the transatlantic slave trade depended on the violent use of power to assert authority over people in a particular setting in order to understand how diseases spread. The names of the anonymous people who doctors studied have been mostly lost, not seen as a vital part of this larger scientific transformation despite the fact that their sickness and often death led to the creation of epidemiology. The conditions in which these people suffered also reveals a key aspect about epidemiological practice. That new insights about the spread of epidemics happen on the ground in real time and cannot be simply imagined or even predicted as part of a thought experiment. History urges us to remember that at the center of epidemiology are people who are suffering. End quote. I know that time is a concept that barely exists anymore. On Saturday, I accidentally told someone it was April. But bear with me for a moment and try to think all the way back to the first several weeks of lockdown in much of the world. Late March, early April-ish. I mean, don't think too hard. It's rough thinking back to then. It's all still pretty raw. But I want you to try to remember one of the many, many observations swirling around in the nature is healing jokes from 2020. And one of the phenomenons people credited as a result of the lack of human activity was that birds suddenly seemed louder. It was a reflection that even made it onto the early days of this podcast. At the time, I shared the opinion of an ornithologist in NPR who said that birds were actually being quieter than usual without the human-created noise to compete with. It only sounded louder to us because we were also hearing less human-created noise, or because some of us may have been home at times of the day when we weren't usually. But nearly a year and a half later, we now have evidence that actually, the birds were louder all along. Or, there were at least more of them in urban areas than usual, and presumably more birds equals more noise, even if they're being quieter individually. I think that is probably how it shook out, because per the Wall Street Journal, quote, some species were as much as 14 times more numerous during lockdowns than before pandemic restrictions were imposed, end quote. 
The findings come from a study published yesterday in the journal Science Advances and is based on over 4.3 million observations gathered by birders through the citizen scientist app eBird. eBird, apart from being my last name and middle initial, is a legit program run by the Cornell University Lab of Ornithology, and it's been around for years, but it got a huge uptick in contributions since the start of the pandemic. And all of those contributions helped the researchers piece together their findings. Quoting again, Pigeons appeared unaffected by the lockdowns, the scientists said, but American robins quickly moved into crowded urban areas and along roads they had previously shunned, and the number of ruby-throated hummingbirds seen near airports tripled, the researchers found. Populations of bald eagles increased more in counties with strict lockdowns than those with looser restrictions. The numbers of red-tailed hawks rose in city centers but fell slightly near roads, perhaps as a result of the reduced availability of road kills for scavenging as road traffic eased. Species of New World warblers and sparrows were observed in higher numbers, a finding the researchers called particularly notable as these two families account for nearly 50% of the 3 billion birds lost in North America since 1970. End quote. So, pretty cool. But what's the point? I mean, it's not like we're going to go into lockdown to save the birds. We couldn't even successfully get everyone on board with lockdown or organize it equitably when we had an out-of-control virus on our hands. We definitely can't do it for the birds, especially with the strength of that birds aren't real campaign as an obvious foe. But Ken Rosenberg, a Cornell ornithologist, explained to the Wall Street Journal that birds are, quote, very responsive to positive change, end quote. And the paper itself points out that findings about how quickly birds changed in response to human activity, or the lack thereof, quote, could ultimately help us develop effective strategies to reduce our environmental footprint in a post-COVID-19 world, end quote. I don't love the term post-COVID-19 world, since it's likely to never fully go away, but that's besides the point. The point is, despite how out of control some of the nature-is-healing discourse got, the anthropause was a real thing, and researchers are starting to formally analyze much of the data we recorded at the time, and it'll be fascinating to see some of that come out, but more importantly, it could be incredibly useful in figuring out what kind of changes are practical for us to make towards creating a healthier planet. So two different stories came out this week about women in their hundreds who are kicking butt and taking names. One is a French pianist and the other is a California-based park ranger who is also a musician. And they both seem completely lovely and have led incredible lives, so I just wanted to take a minute to shine a light on each of them. So first, Colette Mays from Paris, France. At 107 years old, she just released her sixth album, making her one of the oldest recording pianists in the world. What I find even more impressive as a headline is that she's actually been playing piano for 102 years. She's been playing piano for over a century. Amazing. At 107, she lives alone on the 14th floor of an apartment building that overlooks the Seine and has a view of the Eiffel Tower. I can only imagine it's rent-controlled in the best way. She's very close with her 71-year-old son, Fabrice, however, who's the one that convinced her to start recording her music. Mays came from a musical family and grew up just down the block from L'École Normale de Musique, a prestigious French institute that she ended up getting accepted into under the tutelage of pianist Alfred Cortot. 
Mays, who lived through both world wars, was a piano teacher for many years, raising her son Fabrice as a single mother after being cut off from her family. Her son, explaining how much of an artist his mother is, told NPR, quote, she married the piano, end quote. And he had the idea to record her playing the piano for two reasons. One, simply to have the recordings for his own sake after she's gone. And two, because she's the last living student of Alfred Courteau, who taught a very specific way of playing piano, in a sort of more relaxed pose of the arms and hands. Amaze didn't think there was any point that she didn't have anything to offer, but eventually she came around and now she's six albums in, the most recent having been released in May. It's simply a compilation of all the Debussy on her earlier recordings, but considering those earlier recordings didn't begin until she was already in her 90s, I still think that's completely impressive. Mays told NPR, quote, Youth is inside us. If you appreciate what's beautiful around you, you will find a sense of wonder in it. End quote. Well, another woman who certainly lives out life with that sense of wonder and youthfulness is America's oldest park ranger, Betty Reed Soskin. She only turned 100 yesterday, so she's a bit younger than Colette Mays, but no less impressive. At 100, she's still an active ranger with the national parks, working at the Rosie the Riveter World War II Homefront National Park, where she leads public programs and is so well-known and beloved that the park's website has a whole page devoted to her. One of her colleagues once described her as, quoting the New York Times, sort of like Bette Davis, Angela Davis, and Yoda all rolled into one, end quote. Like Mays didn't start recording her music until her 90s, Soskin didn't become a park ranger until her 80s, but her life was incredibly remarkable before then. According to the New York Times, she got the park ranger gig while working as a field representative for a California state legislator. She was sitting in on planning meetings for the park and admitted that she had a love-hate relationship with Rosie the Riveter because it only told the white woman's narrative. Black women worked as welders and riveters during World War II, of course, and Soskin herself worked as a file clerk in a segregated unit of the Boilmakers Union. Having grown up in Oakland, California, after her family left their roots in New Orleans following the Great Mississippi Flood of 1927, Soskin originally worked in the U.S. Army Air Force's office at the start of the war. When she realized she was passing as white in the office and up for a promotion, she corrected her employers about being black and was then denied the promotion. So she left government work. Throughout her life, Soskin would face racism, either against herself or others in the community, and relentlessly stand up for justice. She and her husband eventually opened a store called Reed's Records. She went to anti-war protests and fundraised for the Black Panthers. She was a delegate for George McGovern during the 1972 presidential election and a hyper-involved community leader in several arts spaces, including the New Upper Room, which was an important venue for many emerging artists in Oakland's hip-hop scene in the 90s. She was also a musician who turned to music to cope with the hardships of a crumbling marriage as a young mother and with the injustices of racism. Soskin did so much over the years for communities, for arts, for the fight for racial justice, and just like in general accomplished so many different things as a human. 
The job at the Rosie the Riveter Park has really seemed like a fitting denouement, though. She ended up with the job because in those early meetings, when she spoke up on behalf of all the people Rosie the Riveter doesn't represent, she became instrumental in the planning of the park to make sure that black women, Japanese-American women, Mexican-American women, indigenous women, and more are represented at the park in ways that are authentic and respectful but don't sugarcoat the truth. As Soskin puts it, quote, what gets remembered depends on who is in the room doing the remembering, end quote. So it was important for her, as the only person of color at the original planning meetings, to stay involved and tell her story. And to continue to stay involved and to continue sharing her story and others, especially as a form of representation, even when she's not talking, just present there in her park ranger uniform. Because less than 7% of park rangers in the U.S. are black, according to the New York Times. So Soskin says that when little girls of color see her, they know that the national parks are inclusive of them too. Soskin's work has been recognized in some big ways in recent years. Quoting the New York Times, she's been photographed by Annie Leibovitz, interviewed by Anderson Cooper, and invited to the Obama White House, where she introduced the president at the Christmas tree lighting in 2015, and even narrated a commercial for the North Face clothing company that dropped in July. End quote. But she sees herself as a helper more than anything else, and says of how she'd like to be remembered, quoting again from the Times, that I was honest. The only way for me to really be able to live in this world is to deal with it truthfully. End quote. Well, that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.